Let's pray together. Father, there are a lot of things going on in our world that get our attention. Sometimes they break our heart and sometimes they fill our eyes with tears. Sometimes the things that happen, Lord, are so precious and beautiful that we can't hardly describe the joy we feel. You're a good God in the midst of a fallen world and a fallen people. You bring encouragement to us and joy to us. And you help us keep our perspective. We thank you, dear God, that you love us so very much. And we thank you that no matter what the situation, no matter where we are, no matter what we experience, you are there. And that you're mightily at work and you're working in our life and the lives of others. That you use natural events and you use occurrences in countries and you use people and you get them to meld together and blend together that your will might be accomplished. And Father, we're here this morning to say thank you. A lot of times we lose our perspective, Lord. A lot of times we don't appreciate what you're doing in our life or in the country we live in or in the world that we're a part of. I pray that we might be able to see and to sense what you're doing. And I thank you, Lord, that you forgive us for our sins. And I thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that accomplishes that atoning death on our behalf. I pray, dear God, as we do every Sunday for our country. And we pray, dear Lord, that your Holy Spirit might grace us with his presence and might move across this country and cause a spiritual renewal to take place. That we might be a blessing to each other and that we might be a blessing to the world we live in. So we start at the very highest office and work our way down, Lord, asking that your Holy Spirit would bless and move. We thank you for what you do in our church and give you all the praise. We thank you for this beautiful weekend we've just had and And we thank you, dear God, for the opportunity to be together this morning and to worship you. Father, accept our thanks. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to the 8th chapter. And we're going to begin our study in the 28th verse. Gospel of Matthew, the 8th chapter, and if you would, open to the 28th verse and put your finger on that verse. Let's ask God to help us in our study. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now open up your word for us as you have for generations before us. We pray, dear God, that we might understand and that we might remember the things we learn and that we might take them back out into our daily life to influence the way we live and the way we talk about you and the world we live in. So I ask your blessing, Father, on the reading and the preaching of your word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. There was a preacher who did pretty well in seminary and particularly in theology and went to his first church and started to learn about practical application of that which he'd been taught. He went to his second church, still maturing, and I hope for him and for all of us that we continue to mature in the faith. But he was maturing, learning things for the first time, seeing things for the first time. And someone referred a man to him, and the man called, and they talked on the phone for a while, and he sensed the need to get together. And he suggested to the man that they get together as soon as possible. The man left work and came to that minister's office. And as they talked together, the minister began to sense that the man had an acute alcohol problem that was destroying his life. So he encouraged the fellow to go into a detox program at one of the local hospitals. And after talking with the man's employer and the personnel department, and after much conversation, the man agreed to go into the detox program. The preacher called the man's wife, whom he knew, and explained what was about to happen. And then he put the man in his personal car and drove him to the center of town in a metropolitan area and checked the man into a 21-day detox program. Word doesn't come back out readily about what's going on in those situations, not even to family a lot of times. But several weeks went by, and a phone call was placed by the psychiatrist who worked in that unit. And he called that preacher. And he said, I want you to know we're about to release this man that you brought to us. And we have done everything for him we can do. And now you need to get involved because he has some other issues that you uniquely can help with. I don't think that psychiatrist knew how inexperienced that preacher was and what he was about to suggest. The man began to meet with the preacher on a weekly basis. By the grace of God, they met in a small park for lunch, sitting outside at a bench and a table. They met every Thursday for five or six Thursdays. As they met together and as scripture was opened and they discussed scripture, the minister became convinced that what he had read about in the Bible and learned about in theology classes was sitting across the table from him, that the man was demon-possessed. So one of those Thursdays, the minister confronted the man and told the man what he thought was going on. And what happened in the next few moments would scare anybody to death. The man's eyes turned blood red. He had a look on his face that truly was demonic. The table they were sitting at was a concrete table about that thick, about five feet long. 
and it was standing on two concrete legs. And the man, who was a good-sized man, took his fist and hit that concrete table and lifted the table off of its legs and back down. And then in a guttural voice, that was not his voice, said, leave me alone or I will hurt you. Need I tell you that was the end of that conversation? That preacher was so out of his element and beyond his experience that if he were to confess to you today, he'd tell you how sad he was he wasn't able to help. What that did for that minister is it confirmed what he had been taught and what he'd read in Scripture. There's no place in the Bible that says at the end of the New Testament era that demons ceased to exist. In fact, just the opposite. They are eternal just like people. What I'd like to do is I'd like us to take a glimpse into the demonic world because I think it's important to be able to understand what's going on around us. I've chosen a passage from the Gospel of Matthew from the 8th chapter And I'd like you to follow along as I read, starting with the 28th verse. And my friends, remember, this is God who is speaking to us. When he came to the other side and to the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave the region. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at the 28th and 29th verses, it kind of sets up the situation because Jesus had been on the north shore around Capernaum where much of his ministry had taken place. A large crowd of people had gathered. When it came time to disperse him, he told his disciples to get into a boat and he got in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And they began to sail seemingly as dark was setting. They began to sail southeast for the southeastern shore of the sea. As they sailed, if you remember the story, Jesus fell asleep. And the sea roared up and began to endanger the disciples and the boat. You remember they awakened him and he calmed the sea. And you remember how surprised they were? that he had control over nature, which is something you and I need to not forget. He is God. 
he controls his creation. And then they landed the boat at a place where there are rocks coming down almost to the edge of the sea. It's a place where people entombed the dead. And the scripture says to us that two demoniacs, two men, human beings like you and I, who were indwelt by demons, came out of the rocks and came down onto that bit of a beach to meet Jesus. What is a demon? Simply put, it's an evil spirit. It's an eternal evil spirit, but it's an evil spirit. Many would say that it is a group of fallen angels that followed a fallen archangel and is at this time bound here on earth, cannot leave this earth, and one day God will deal with them in an absolute way. But for our purposes, let's call them just evil spirits. And I pose a question to you. There are two men who are indwelt by the, whole, by the demonic presence. How'd that happen? There's a criteria that's helpful for us to remember. If you are a possession of God because his Holy Spirit has come on you and he by grace has brought you to the point that you know Jesus as your Savior, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you and he possesses you. And be assured, absolutely, a demon cannot possess you. For you already belong to God. It's important to remember that. Second possibility. If a person's a Christian, and they're walking in the flesh, and not walking in the spirit, if they're suppressing the Holy Spirit, intellectually, physically, with their thoughts, with their appetites, with their behavior, then what they're doing is creating a partial vacuum in themselves instead of being filled with the Spirit of God. A demon cannot possess them. They still belong to God. But a demon can sure impact them and can cause them to take on a behavior that looks very much like a demon-possessed person. Our Westminster Confession, if you go back and read it, has a chapter that has always spoken so clearly to this. It says, and I'm paraphrasing, that we can take on all sorts of evil in our life. We can look like we're lost. We can look like we're not God's chosen people. But if we are, we will eventually repent and come back around and accept Christ, and we will spend eternity with him. Well, the problem is that period of time where people allow demons to make suggestions to them, to try to influence them. I can't mention all of those possibilities in my sermon. But if you excuse yourself for your thinking and think that you can think entertaining thoughts that are unhealthy spiritual thoughts and that somehow you can manage that, know that that is not true. And what Satan wants to do through his demons is to get you to believe that. 
so that you will drop your guard. If you tell a lie and you seemingly get away with it, which you do not because God knows about it, and then you get in the habit of embellishing the truth to where it is a lie, you're being encouraged to do that because that is not how God wants you to live. If you abuse alcohol or any other substance and you tell yourself, I can handle this and it will not make me a captive, you're under the influence of an evil spirit that's telling you to do something that is categorically and biblically wrong. Drunkenness is a sin. What we've done in our society is we have dumbed down on so many of these things and we excuse ourselves or think too highly of ourselves. And it's possible for a believer to take on these evil attributes and to suffer the consequences of that and still be a repentant person who spends eternity with Christ. As the third category the person who does not know Jesus. So they think in the flesh. And when they think in the flesh, they're so susceptible to evil thoughts and evil spirits. And it just comes so naturally. I don't know if these two men were in the second or third category. They were not in the first because they are possessed with evil spirits. Interesting thing, if you look closely at the 29th verse, your theology can kind of blossom. And they cried out saying, what business do you have with each of us, son of God? Guess what? They knew who Jesus was. Even the people that he met and preached to and ministered to didn't recognize him as the son of God, but these demons did. They knew exactly who he was. And they go on to say, did you come to torment us? Suddenly you start to realize he has authority over them. He has power over them. So don't ever think that as crafty and powerful as demons are, that in any way Jesus doesn't have authority over them. Because he does. And those demons knew They were in a confrontation they could not win. And if you look carefully at the end of 29, it says, you come here to torment us before the time. They even know what's coming in the future. They know that when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to deal with the evil spirits and he's going to cast them into the pit and they are going to be captives in torment for eternity, and these demons understand that completely. It's an interesting thing to me that while Satan and demons certainly know that they're going to lose this battle, they certainly fight like they're going to win it, don't they? They're relentless. If you look at verses 30 through 32, you'll see the goal that the dynamic forces have in mind. If you go back to 28, one thing is that these men who are demon-possessed are so violent 
that people are afraid to walk along the coastline because they're afraid they'll come out and attack them. That's part of their strategy. That is part of their goal, to put fear into the lives of other people. If you look on a bit more, they see swine. Mark tells us there are 2,000 of those pigs. And they see them in a distance. And what do they say? They say to Jesus, if you are going to cast us out, Jesus hasn't said that, but they perceived that. And they say, if you're going to cast us out of these men, cast us into those swine. And Jesus says, you're cast out. Hear the authority. Hear the power. He has complete control over the situation. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be one of the apostles watching all this unfold and being able to start seeing the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and realizing who he really was. Why did he cast them into the swine? He knew what was going to happen. The moment the demons were in the swine, they turned that whole herd of swine and they started running toward a cliff and went off into the water of the Sea of Galilee and drowned. The demons didn't drown. The swine drowned. When a demon comes on a person, he is attacking God and God's creation. And his intention is to destroy God's creation. So what he's wanting to do is, in this case, destroy the swine. In a human sense, to destroy people. But he doesn't get destroyed in that transaction. You and I have watched Benghazi. Folks, there's nothing normal or natural about what happened in Benghazi. Evil was at work. The planning and the execution was absolutely evil. We see riots used to be just in other countries like Egypt, like Syria. We see some of those riots in our own streets. In our lifetime starting back in Watts in the 60s and and in Florida during the Republican nomination and convention. And we've had riots in our streets where people are doing unthinkable things. You know the tragedy of the Watts riots? The people burned their own stores and their own homes. They never got out of their own community. A thinking person wouldn't do that. But a person under the influence of evil would do that because it makes no human sense. And if you stop and look at what's going on in our world where people are responding violently like these two men, you see evil at work. And the purpose of the evil is to destroy God's creation. And it's happening all around us. There's another very real possibility, and it works its way out in the passage. By taking those swine over the cliff and having them drown themselves, 
What they were also doing was trying to alienate the owners of the swine from Jesus. Think through that a moment. Clever evil spirits doing all sorts of things with multiple agendas, all focused on trying to hurt God and destroy his creation. If you look at 33 through 34, you'll see the response to this demonic force. The herdsmen went back into the town, and they told the owners of the swine and others in the town what had happened. And they gave two reports according to Scripture. On the one hand, they said the swine all jumped into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. On the other hand, they also say, but the demons who were in the two men have been cast out, meaning those two men are now healthy people again. Scripture says not just the owners of the swine, but everybody in the city came rushing out. Did they come rushing out to see the two men that have now been healed and to give praise to God for the healing? You know what they did? They came out and said, Jesus, we want you to get out of our country. Have you heard that in our country? God, we want you to get out of the United States of America. And if you watch the news, even the news reports the assault on God. It's almost daily on our university campuses, in political settings, and in some churches, the living Jesus Christ is being asked to leave that place. What do we do about all this? I want you to know there are going to be evil spirits at work in this world until Jesus comes again. That is a reality. He has authority over them. He exercises that authority. They're trying to destroy all the things of God, including us. So, what can we do? I've come to a simple conclusion. It's the same thing that has been going on with the New Testament church since the Lord first raised it up. We've got to tell other people about Jesus, folks. There is no other way to cope with what's going on. When people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they cannot be indwelt by evil spirits. Those who come to faith, we need to nurture them and encourage them, one, to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, so they won't be susceptible to evil spirits. Two, to teach them how to touch other people with the gospel as God calls them to salvation. If we don't do that, you're going to see the carnage in your own families and all around us. And what we have seen is really just the tip of the iceberg as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus. We need to invite God back into our homes, back into our country. And it starts with you and with me.
a very present danger. Demons do exist. But praise God, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and I thank you, dear God, that while the human dilemma looks so impossible, it's not impossible for you at all. I thank you that you're working your will out, and I pray, dear God, that you would touch us and draw us closer to you and give us your mind and help us to walk in your spirit and help us not to be deceived by evil spirits. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are sitting here today and you have not accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, say something to me at the back door. Give me an opportunity to talk to you. Let's stand together. You know, I had intended to bring you over here and put my arm around you and pray for you. But you're getting ready to play the piano. You're suggesting I come over there. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for a beautiful weekend. I thank you for your servant who's been here and served you so beautifully. I thank you for the encouragement you give all of us through our time of worship and Bible study and through the music we have enjoyed. Please, dear God, let your spirit be quickened in all of us. Bless us and keep us. For I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, my brother. Thanks, Bill. We'll have to.